Christian, what comes to mind when you think of the Apostle Peter's second epistle? Perhaps not a whole lot. This book is something of a redheaded stepchild, isn't it? It's certainly no Romans. It's not the book of Hebrews. It's 2 Peter. And if we're familiar with the themes of the epistle, uh, it's, probably, it's probably Peter's warning against false teachers that really stands out to us, which is good. That's fine. But it's really only half the story. Uh, if you would, turn to the letter's concluding verses. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 of 2 Peter. And here we have Peter's overall purpose, both the negative and the positive. This is why he wrote the book. Verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, that is forewarned by everything I've just written in the last three chapters, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. That's the book's negative purpose. But the positive purpose Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which means Peter's purpose in writing this letter is to encourage his readers to mature, to mature in their understanding and practice of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because they're being threatened by false teaching that might cut off their spiritual growth. And that overall purpose of the whole book fits well with the theme of our text today. If you look at your handout in the bulletin, it says big picture. The big picture of our text is this. Because, because God has given Christians all we need to become spiritually mature, we must actively pursue spiritual maturity if we expect to receive a rich welcome into God's eternal kingdom. And I, I, do you see, though, there the, the unembarrassed tension Right? Between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because God has given Christians all we need to become spiritually mature, He's given it to us, we must actively pursue spiritual maturity. Which means this passage is all about living a godly life. It's about how Christians go about doing that, the means by which believers live a godly life. Escaping the corruption in the world caused by evil desires and living in such a way so that we here on the last day, Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what our text is about. Friends, there is nothing, nothing more important than that. Today's sermon is titled, Confirming, Confirming Our Calling and Our Election. And what our calling and election are, we're going to come to that in a bit. But I need to warn us, uh, this is a dense text, all right? Uh, Of all the sermons in our second Peter series, this passage is the heaviest. As always, as always, we're going to need the Spirit's help, the Holy Spirit's help. Frankly, without His help, we may just all as well go home. But we also, I think, need to be wearing our thinking caps as we follow along the biblical text very closely. So you'll want your Bibles open on your laps or open on your phones. And there's also a sermon outline in your bulletin that I hope is helpful. Now, this book is written by, obviously, the Apostle Peter. But if we're familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul then we know that Paul often uses athletic analogies and metaphors to illustrate spiritual truth. Paul's a sports fan. You get war history and movies from John Bell. I think you were hearing Paul preach. You're getting these sports analogies. Kind of like Alex, in a way. 
And one of his favorite analogies is of a runner, a runner in a race. The runner, of course, being a Christian and the race being the Christian life, the whole Christian life. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a sprint, right? It's a marathon. And the prize, the crown that the, the runner receives when he crosses that finish line is the culmination on the last day of the whole work of salvation. Everything, everything God has accomplished in consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, with all of its implications. So, resurrected, glorified, sinless bodies, the new heavens, the new earth, eternal life, everything. And frequently in Paul, as he alludes to this running metaphor, we have this picture of maximum effort. Maximum effort as the Christian moves ahead, always moving forward toward the finish line to seize that prize. Friends, I've read the New Testament cover to cover multiple times, but I've yet, I've yet to find a, an analogy or a metaphor likening the Christian life to sitting on a bus with the gearbox in neutral, just coasting down a hill. The imagery is always that of striving, striving, isn't it? Right? Of action, of struggle, of warfare. So, as Christians, and in light of God's word, we must honestly ask ourselves the following questions. I'm asking you this today. Ask yourself, am I presently living in the glow? Am I living on the fumes of past spiritual experiences? Something big that happened last year or five years ago or 15 years ago, something really big and wonderful. What's my plan for enduring to the end? What's my strategy for making it across that finish line on the, with the rest of the church of Jesus Christ on the last day and, and seizing that prize that God has called me to. Do I understand, do I biblically understand what's required of a Christian, of a believer to achieve that objective? Because I'll tell us right now, folks, it's not achieved by reciting the mantra of the little engine that could. Right? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. It's not achieved by letting go and letting God or by coasting on spiritual fumes. We won't make it. What's required, beloved, is maximum effort. Peter, now hear what, this, hear what I'm saying here. Peter commands that we add to our faith. And that sounds scandalous, right? He commands that we add to our faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Look at verse 10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort, not just coasting, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, that is, if you add to your faith the seven steps that you see listed in your bulletin under point number three, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, wow, that's, that's amazing. There's, there's one-stop uh, soteriological shopping right there, right? How to get saved, how to stay saved. Aren't you glad you came to church today? 
This is absolutely essential. This means by God's grace, we're all going to leave church today knowing how to make our calling and our election sure. And so receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God. I mean, here is the certain, the certain roadmap to final victory. <clears throat> now, Peter opens his epistle with the standard elements typical of a letter from this period. Uh, here we have the identification of the writer of the letter. He says, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, followed by uh, the identification of the recipients of the letter to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, followed by this introductory greeting. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's a lot there. Uh, Let's just look at the name first. Double names like Simon Peter. uh, Those were common in the ancient Near East. People used the name that they were given in their native language and a Greek name since Greek was so widely spoken. So Simon comes from the Hebrew. Peter comes from the Greek. Peter, of course, being the name that Jesus himself gave to the apostle. Petros means rock. And by calling himself a servant of Jesus Christ, or better, a slave of Jesus Christ, Peter is saying that his person and service belong wholly to him. Jesus is Peter's master. But... Peter is also an apostle, which means Peter is one of our Lord's special authoritative messengers and representatives, which gives the apostle Peter the right to command all Christians in a way that transcends time, culture. He has the right to command, to tell us what to believe and how to live. This fisherman from 2,000 years ago. Peter is a man who speaks for God. He's an apostle of Jesus. And whom is he addressing? We read, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Which means Peter is writing to uh, Gentile Christians. He wants to assure Gentile Christians that they have a status in the church fully equal to that himself and other Jewish Christians. And notice that the faith that these Gentile Christians have is a faith that they've received. They didn't come to believe the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin because they're more spiritually attuned or they're smarter than anybody else. No, true saving faith is a received faith faith. It's a gift from God, which excludes all human boasting. It's gloriously humbling. (laughs) Man, I mean, this, this one verse is just packed with good stuff. What else does Peter say? Well, we might have expected him to say that Christians receive this precious faith through the mercy of God or through the grace of God. Uh, Both would be true, but instead, Peter says we've received this precious faith through the righteousness of God. What does that mean? What's he getting at? Just in your own minds, think that right now. What does he mean by we've received this precious faith through the righteousness of God? It sounds a lot like 1 John 1, 9, doesn't it? There, There we're famously told God 
is faithful and just or righteous. It's the same word. Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. God is righteous. God is just. Because when God forgives sin and when he grants saving faith, he's not being untrue to himself. He's not being untrue to his own holy standard. When God forgives sins, your sin, my sin, he's not acting like an overindulgent, good-natured grandpa. Right? I mean, grandfathers are always happy to overlook the waywardness of their grandchildren. I mean, right, at Christmas time, they're all running around yelling like banshees, and grandpa's like, oh, oh, it's okay, you know. They're very indulgent, grandpas are. But not God. He is, he is just to forgive us. Sinners, he's just. He is righteous to forgive us. Rebel idolaters. How can that be? Because he's provided Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as a propitiation for our sins. And it's the same idea, I think, here in 2 Peter 1. We received this precious faith through the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice, the Apostle Peter refers to his readers as those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received the faith as precious as ours. He explicitly here calls Jesus God. Our God and Savior. When Muslims say the New Testament never talks about Jesus being God, point them to this text. It's just, it's, it, but it's more than just a wonderful affirmation of Jesus' deity. Uh, in the context of the entire letter, this letter which repeatedly warns us against uh, immorality, godlessness, rebellion, licentiousness, it underscores the fact that the Jesus that we profess as being our Lord, if we're Christians at all, that he is God, in fact. And he is the righteous God. Therefore, rebellion against Jesus is doubly foolish. It's doubly dangerous. How can we think we can get away with living unrighteous lives when our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is himself righteous? Wow. All that in the opening verse. Picking up speed. I'm not going to spend that much time on every single verse. Don't worry. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And that's Peter's prayer. He's praying for them. This would be the case. He prays these Christians will experience the blessings of grace and peace in increasing measure. Grace, of course, is tied to God's unmerited favor under the terms of the new covenant. We, just, we were just celebrating that this morning. And peace is the holistic well-being that God's grace ultimately, ultimately achieves for us. Grace. And peace be yours in abundance. Amen. But how do Christians receive this grace and peace? Does God just zap us with it? Folks, at this point, we need to slow right down. This is everything. All right. It undergirds the entire passage. So listen carefully. Verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God. And of Jesus, our Lord. And I think it might be a good idea to circle the word knowledge there in your Bible if you own your own. <laughs> knowledge is a key idea in the book of Second Peter. Knowledge. Growing in knowledge. It comes down to this. Our knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, is the means. It's the means by which we enjoy grace and peace and abundance.
to the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. What does that mean precisely? I mean, it sounds super important. It sounds like very Christian. It sounds very religious. It sounds good. But what does it actually mean? I've always been struck by something Don Carson wrote in his excellent book on the prayers of Paul. And it fits in here perfectly, although he's referencing a different text. But he writes this. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. When it comes to knowing God, we're a culture of the spiritually stunted. So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in the pursuit of our own happiness, our own fulfillment. God simply becomes the great being who potentially, at least, meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. We think rather little of what he is like, what he expects of us, what he seeks in us. We are not captured by his holiness and by his love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. In the biblical view of things, a deeper knowledge of God brings with it massive improvement in our purity, our integrity, evangelistic effectiveness, better study of scripture, improved private and corporate worship, and much more. However, if we seek these things without passionately desiring a deeper knowledge of God, we are selfishly running after God's blessings without running after him. We're even worse than the man who wants his wife's services, someone to come home to, someone to cook and clean, someone to sleep with, without ever making the effort to really know and love his wife and discover what she wants, what she needs. We are worse than such a man, I say, because God is more than any wife, more than the best of wives. He is perfect in his love. He has made us for himself, and we are answerable to him. You see, what we need to understand moving forward in this passage is that knowledge involves relationship. Knowledge involves relationship, and it's this relationship with Jesus that's the ultimate issue in 2 Peter. Peter refers to this knowledge again, you'll see, in verse 3, and then again in verse 8 as the foundation for Christian experience. Look at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But on the flip side, Peter claims the false teacher's fate will be all the more serious because they had come to know Christ, but then they turned away from that knowledge. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they are at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have what? Known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their back on the sacred command that was passed on to them. 
And then Peter returns to this concept of knowledge at the end of his letter. The text that I read for us earlier, chapter 3, 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, since you already know this, that's what it says in the Greek text, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So, This is a big introduction, but all this to say, when Peter begins his letter by referring to the knowledge of God and of Jesus our our Lord, he's saying that Christians will only enjoy grace, will only enjoy peace and abundance as we grow in our relationship to God and to Jesus. And this takes us directly to our second point, but it's so easy to pass over and just it's just we can just read it so fast it happens so quickly and not really allow what it says to sink into our hearts look at look at the second point god has given christians all we need to become spiritually mature to actually grow in this grace and peace and abundance he's given all of it we have it all look at verse three his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life Now, there's a verse. Christian, do you believe it? Do you think Peter is stretching the truth here? He's trying to just, you know, maybe pump the gospel up a little bit more than it can really handle? Or is this this an absolute fact? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Do you want to live a godly life? Do you want to behave how God expects you to behave? No excuses, right? Just joyful obedience. Is that what you desire? Then know this. God's divine power has given you everything that you need. God is powerfully at work to enable you to live such a life. You lack nothing. Nothing. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, verse 4, that is his glory and his goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them, these great and precious promises, you may participate in the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Okay, that that is a, a glorious glorious hunk of theological stake (laughs) there's a lot going on there that's a complex couple of verses but it's glorious but the chief point we need to take away from this is this is that the one who calls us and whether that's referring to god the father or jesus specifically it's hard to know for sure um, but the one who calls us beloved also enables us the god who calls us transforms us His power, we're told, gives us everything we need for a godly life. Period. Not so much his intrinsic power as God. This more likely refers to God's power to reclaim lost sinners. A power unleashed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this great power comes to all who have been called by God. All who have been called by Jesus Christ. How did he call us? By his own glory and goodness. His glory. That is God's unique excellence, his divine majesty, his goodness, his moral virtue. 
through these, his glory and goodness, his unique excellence, his divine majesty, his moral virtue, God has given us his very great and precious promises. What are those promises? In context, they're all gospel promises. Gospel promises that transform us. Gospel promises that prepare us for a life of godliness so we escape from the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And these gospel promises have been given in order that we might participate in the divine nature. It's amazing. That's what the text says. So look at it again. Through these... He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, the precious gospel promises, you may participate in the divine nature, which is the only place in the New Testament that uses that kind of language. Now, some people think participating in the divine nature means something like becoming God or becoming little godlets or being, being absorbed into God or something like that. No, that is, that is way off. In the context, Peter's emphasis is on moral change, isn't it? Um, We just have to follow the flow of the text. We participate in the divine nature and so escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In other words, the emphasis here isn't on ontology, the status of our being, of becoming like little gods, but on morality. The emphasis is on morality. What Peter seems to mean, and we need to be very careful because this is the only place in the Bible that uses this kind of language. But what Peter seems to mean is that believers come to share in some essential qualities that are characteristic of God himself. We come to share in these qualities. Now, just what those qualities are, the apostle doesn't say, right? So it's necessary to search the New Testament carefully to determine what they might be. And just as importantly, what they cannot be, what they could not be. But at this point, we can simply say Peter must have in mind those divine qualities that enables believers to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And escaping corruption, of course, has to do with the renouncing of sin in this life. Now, commentators go on for page after page at this point, but I think Peter sees our participation in the divine nature as consisting especially in our new ability to resist sin through our union with Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, through our union with Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we share, we share in something of God's own holy nature, separated from the corrupt world around us. It's glorious. And it's precisely for this very reason, verse 5, that we're called on to progress in holiness and godliness. See, he just, he, he front loads, Peter front loads this with just theological text and concept after concept. It's very, it's very dense. It's very glorious. It's very tight. It's very hard maybe to follow at certain points. But then he says, and then this leads then into how you live your life because this is actually undergirding it. But the fact that Peter goes on to encourage us to make such progress now shows us that participating in the divine nature doesn't automatically bring us into a state of holiness, a state of sinlessness. We still need to work. After all this amazing theology of union with Christ and filling with the Spirit, participating in the divine nature, we still need to work. We still need to strive after holiness and godly living. Folks, I I know this is a complex text. There's a lot going on. It's rich. It can be difficult to follow Peter's flow of thought. But here's what we must, must see. 
Our participating in the divine nature has not brought us now into a situation where we can just sit back, throw the bus into neutral, and simply enjoy our new status as we coast across the finish line. Christians don't drift toward a godly life. Christians don't drift into heaven. We must fight for godliness. Sin is a daily battle. And those who don't understand that wind up in hell. So, brother, sister, what do you do in the face of temptation? What have you been doing? Take this out of the theological abstract and make it personal. Make it practical. Be honest. Do you just sort of hope for the best? Or maybe do you cut yourself off from the world entirely? Do you just sort of circle the wagons in a holy huddle? Or do you habitually and unrepentantly indulge and then appease your conscience by telling yourself, hey, it's okay. I feel guilty. I feel terrible. I feel horribly guilty. And that must be the Spirit's work, which means, that means I'm saved as saved can be. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. That, that's His convicting work. I feel guilty. I feel bad. There's no need to repent and obey. I'm still going to heaven because I feel guilty for my sin. Praise God. Guys, I can't tell you how many professing Christians mired in sin have told that to me with confidence. That road leads to death. The moment we make peace with sin, we make God our enemy. Believer, how do you escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires? Habitually, time and again, what's your practice? What's your advice to other believers who are struggling with sin, right? How do you make your calling and your election sure? What sort of theological understanding informs your practice? Right teaching leads to right living, right? This is so important. When I was a boy, my grandfather often would take me fishing out on the St. Lawrence River. And I was always fascinated by grandpa's tackle box. Um, It would open up in the middle with multiple levels. Multiple shelves would pop out. And it seemed to me that grandpa had something for every fishing situation imaginable. Um, Sinkers, all different weights, fishing line, pliers, measuring tape, bobbers, lures for catching this sort of fish, lures for catching that sort of fish. And there were musky lures. Muskies are the biggest fish that you will catch in the Thousand Islands. They're massive, prehistoric-looking beasts. I think the, the biggest one they've caught is like 70 pounds. Um, and you're, you're swimming with these things. <laughs> but they call it the fish of 10,000 casts. Uh, they're very rare to, get, to catch one. But I never once saw my grandfather use a musky lure. And I remember as a boy being very disappointed with that. I mean, there's the lure right there, Grandpa. Let's, let's use that lure and just catch the beast. <clears throat> Beloved, what's in your sanctification tackle box? What has God given us, his new covenant children? Hear the word of the Lord. He has given us his very great and precious 
gospel promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. But here's the question. Do we avail ourselves of these very great and precious gospel promises given to us by God, or do they stay on a shelf, neglected, gathering dust? Through our union with Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we share in something of God's own holy nature, separated from the corrupt world around us. Christian, you need to know that. You need to believe it. You need to live it. And it's precisely for this very reason, verse 5, that we're called on to progress in holiness and godliness. Right? Because, that, because that's there, because these precious promises are yours, therefore, progress in your holiness. Right? But the fact that Peter goes on to encourage us to make such progress shows us that participating in the divine nature doesn't automatically bring us into a state of sinlessness. We still need to work, Christian. We still need to strive after holiness and godly living. Maximum effort. Maximum effort. Which takes us to our third point. The believer's responsibility. So you've had God's promises. Now it's the believer's responsibility. Christians must actively pursue spiritual maturity. Verse 5. For this reason, therefore, make every effort to add to your faith Goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and so forth. In other words, precisely because God has given us his promises and because his power does work in us, therefore, work at it. Now, I understand this is a bit of a mind-boggling concept. So if you would, flip over to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 12. This passage works through the same themes, divine sovereignty and human responsibilities we see here in 2 Peter. I think it's much, much easier to follow, though. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or as the NLT translates it, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Verse 13 in the NIV, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So there we have it. Work hard, believer, to show the results of your salvation. There's nothing anti-gospel about that one bit. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Why? Because it's God working in you, giving you the desire to do what pleases him and the power. Now, obviously, these verses, they cross over that paradoxical line of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and it's vitally important that we grasp the connection. Why is that? Because, beloved, this addresses that all-important question, how do we overcome sin and live the Christian life? How do you answer that? How do we overcome sin and live the Christian life? How would you respond? John MacArthur asks this, is defeating sin something God does in us, or do we defeat it by obeying the commands of Scripture? In other words, is the Christian life an exercise in passive trust or active obedience? Is it all God's doing, all the believer's doing, or a combination of both? And those questions, of course, are as old as the church. 
and the varied answers given have spawned whole movements, whole denominations. But notice the apostle makes no attempt to rationally harmonize the believer's part and God's part in sanctification, in our progressive holiness. It, it, he's content with the paradox. It doesn't bother him one bit. He doesn't embarrass him. He simply states both truths, saying on the one hand, yes, sanctification is of believers. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The assumption being that choice and effort are required, right? Choice and effort. On the other hand, sanctification is of God. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The text does not say... Victoria, work to acquire your salvation because God's done his part and now it's all up to you. Nor does he say, Maria, you may already have your salvation, but now perseverance in it depends entirely on you. Still less does it say, Desiree, let go and let God just relax. The Holy Spirit will just carry you across the finish line. Put the bus in neutral and just coast down that hill. Rather, Paul tells us to work at our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to work hard to show the results of our salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and deep fear. And far from this being a disincentive to press on and strive after spiritual excellence and obedience, far from this allowing us to put the the bus in neutral and just coast across the finish line, Paul insists that God working in us at the level of our will and our doing is an incentive. It's an incentive. Think about it. Loved ones, if we're assured that God works this way in his people, then we should be all the more resolved to will and to act in ways that please our master. God's sovereign sway over our lives is not a disincentive to action, to holy living, right? But an incentive for us to get in step with what God is doing. Therefore, get in step with what God is doing in your sanctification, Christian. Stop looking at porn. That way leads to death. Throw your phone or your tablet in the trash if you have to. Get in step with what God is doing at the level of your will, Christian. Start putting others first. Demonstrate that by your actions, not just by a creed that you recite. Die to self-interest. Be last. Be the slave of all. Get in step with what God is doing at the level of your doing, Christian. Strive to make those best choices. Those choices where the gospel is at the center of your aspirations. That God might fulfill his purposes. Dismantle those darling idols in your heart. Don't you see? He has given us his very great and precious gospel promises so that through them we might, may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and so on and so on. There's seven in all. Let's just reflect for a moment very quickly on this list of additions, additions to the faith that we've received. Add to your faith goodness. There's that word again, goodness. 
God has disclosed himself in glory and goodness. And now we add goodness to faith. That means we add moral excellence. We add genuine, transformed goodness. Add to your faith and goodness knowledge. Which in the context probably isn't just intellectual content, but the kind of content that enables moral discernment. Moral discernment. The ability to discern God's will and orient one's life in accordance with that will. But even after we're morally discerning and pretty knowledgeable, we can still be completely without self-control, in which case we might just become arrogant. So he says, add to your knowledge self-control, not only with respect to food and to drink, but in every domain, temper, speech, imagination, sex, addictions, use of time, workaholism, everything. Then add to that not just a burst of spiritual energy in which we control ourselves for a time, but then next time, next week, we let it all go and we just take a holiday, but rather perseverance. So not just patience, which is passive, but active resolve. This is so important. A resolve unmoved by difficulty. A resolve unmoved by fear. A resolve unmoved by hard-to-get-along-with-people. A resolve unmoved by setbacks and discouragements and even personal failures. In the deepest sense, Christians don't give up. We persevere. We endure. (coughs) Add to that godliness. That is an awareness of God in all of life so that all this conduct is (coughs) God-centered. Brothers and sisters, while God gives us the ability to become godly, it's our responsibility to use the power that he has made available to us And actually work at becoming people who actively please God in every aspect of life. Those are our marching orders. And yes, this God-centeredness has social dimensions too. It works itself out in relationships in the church. Add to this mutual affection and to mutual affection, love. Verse 8. Follow along this verse very closely. If, if. You possess these seven qualities in increasing measure. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you hear that? Our knowledge of God turns in part on the transformation of our entire character. Some of our knowledge of God is going to come out of a life of transformed godliness. It's not just all head knowledge or textbook knowledge. If, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Doug Moo writes this. It's included in your handout. The issue is not merely whether Christians possess the virtues of verses seven to five to seven, all Christians do to some degree, but whether they are continually growing in them. In contrast, spurious Christians, people who claim that Christ has cleansed them but have shut their eyes to the truth, they lack these seven virtues. They don't see the gospel clearly. They've lost all sense of proportion. 
They can't see how things are shaping up long-term down the road. They've foolishly focused just on the immediate. Or is, uh, So verse 10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort. You hear the paradox. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election from eternity past. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Or as the KJV famously translates it, make your calling and election sure. Calling, that is God's effectual, effectual call from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith, from death to life. Make it sure. Election, the act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow, man, there's a promise we need to heed, right? I mean, there's a warning we need to heed. Get out the tattoo ink, I say. (laughs) This is one of the major New Testament texts on the doctrine of sanctification, as well as the Christian's persevering obedience. This is a text we need to meditate on and pray over and over. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, I need to start landing the plane. But the application of this basic concern is obvious. It's super straightforward. Here it is. Just as in Peter's day, the church contains many people who fail in various ways to display the kind of godly behavior that God requires of us. Now, that sort of lackadaisical attitude toward godliness can affect even the most dedicated believer. All right, Make no mistake, this isn't just the, the soul preserve of people who are just a whisker away from apostasy. He's not saying that. All of us, we find it so easy to presume upon God's grace. Right? Being, by becoming satisfied with simply being saved. Right? I've got the fire insurance tucked away in my breast pocket. I, I think that might just be our default position. I think it is mine. We begin to slip into an attitude toward our sin, sort of expressed by the French skeptic Voltaire. God will forgive. That's his job. You ever thought that? God will forgive. I can indulge in this thing this afternoon, then God will forgive. That's his job. No. Peter sounds a clear warning against this spiritual slackness. Look at your big picture again in your bulletins. Because God has given Christians all we need to become spiritually mature, we must actively pursue spiritual maturity if we expect to receive a rich welcome into God's eternal kingdom. So let me conclude with just with two practical suggestions for following Peter's injunction to grow in godliness and one warning. Practical suggestion number one. We must make sure that we're genuine believers to begin with. And so many people deceive themselves at just this point. They think they're Christians because they grew up in a Christian home, or they walked down the aisle at an evangelistic crusade, or they prayed the sinner's prayer, they spoke in tongues, whatever. 
but they find themselves frustrated at every turn when they try to live as God wants them to, and it's no wonder. Trying to become holy apart from being born from above by God's Spirit, apart from His sanctifying work, is impossible. It's impossible. Perhaps you've heard the story told by Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor in 19th century London. One day, a drunken man came up to Spurgeon and said, Ah, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon replied, I dare say you are, but you're none of the Lord's or you wouldn't be drunk. And as a pastor, Spurgeon was well acquainted with this problem. People who've gone to church and enough to learn to talk differently, to talk the Bible, to talk Christianity, but whose hearts haven't changed so that they live differently. The gospel must be understood and then it must be believed in. In true conversion, we rest in Christ. We trust in him and his merits before God. The real change of Christian conversion involves relying on Jesus alone. This great change is all about realizing we can never go to church enough. We can never give enough money. We can never be kind enough or beautiful enough or happy and contented with our religious lives enough to merit God's good will toward us. We can't justify ourselves before God, improving our lives a little bit here and a little bit there, and thinking that somehow those changes will hide our sin from God or make our hearts appear righteous before him. We must realize that because of our sin, because of our sin, we are truly desperate, desperate before God. Regardless of how prosperous our outward situation may seem to be, we're truly desperate before our Creator. Our only hope comes in understanding that God has taken on flesh in Christ, that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross in the place of all those who would ever turn and trust in him, and that he rose in victory over our sins and now offers to pour out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Right? Beginning to have this reliance, this trust in Jesus alone, is the nature of the great change that takes place in biblical conversion. My second practical suggestion for following Peter's injunction to grow in godliness is to diligently avail ourselves of all the biblically prescribed means of grace, all the means at our disposal to cultivate the Spirit's power in our lives. This means reading the Word, prayer, participating in corporate worship, Christian fellowship, discipling others, evangelism, and so on and so on. And by far, what God will use the most in our lives to make us most like, more like his son, what he's going to use to edify us, to build us up and produce those Christian virtues of goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection and love, what God will use most in our lives will be the grace supplied and the service rendered, the sacrifices made, the love bestowed, the accountability kept and sought, the prayers offered up, the forgiveness tendered, the life lived as a faithful member of a Bible-believing church. Christian, I trust you prioritize meeting with your brothers and sisters in person to enjoy together all the various means of grace found in gathering as the church to worship God. Now, obviously, that's, that one point is a sermon all into itself. It's one I've preached many times in the past. I'll just leave it there and pray the Lord will provoke all of us just to our reflectiveness, I guess, of the preciousness of corporate church life. 
Be a member of a, of a local church. Meaningful membership. Finally, a warning, and I'll close with this. We're called not only to early steps of faith and obedience, but to an entire life of working out our salvation. Learn this early in your Christian pilgrimage. Lifelong obedient faith is inseparably linked to the Christian's assurance of salvation. The sad thing is there's a lot of confusion regarding how obedience and assurance are related. Confusion that can be exploited by the evil one to great spiritual harm and even eternal harm. So hear me, loved ones. If we're believers, if we're truly converted, then the basis, the basis of our assurance of full salvation, of sin forgiven, of being glory bound is Jesus. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and all its gospel entailments. And as long as we're trusting in Jesus alone, right, however falteringly, our faith will work out in terms of growing understanding, obedience, perseverance, and final glorification, however challenging the way may be at times, because the gospel is mighty to save, and Jesus' blood can make the foulest clean. But the Bible never allows our assurance of salvation in Jesus and his saving gospel, or the character of God, his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, or the nature of the new covenant, or the finality of election, once saved, always saved, or the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to ever become an excuse for spiritual indifference, an excuse for sin, an excuse for disobedience, which is why Peter can say, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if we drift from or rebel against Jesus and his way, and I don't mean some painful, stupid lapse or temporary rage, both scripture and experience can show us just how fickle we can all be. I'm talking about sustained defiance, right? Unrepentant, habitual disobedience. And sooner or later, we call into question the genuineness of the trust that we claim to place in Jesus Christ. And we are in real, real danger of hell. Because the New Testament insists that the God who has called his people to his new covenant works powerfully in us to conform us to the likeness of his Son. The New Testament insists that the Holy Spirit, in a continuous, gracious, sovereign, sanctifying work, empowers God's new covenant people to produce spiritual fruit. And that glorious truth needs to become both an incentive to press on in the faith, picking up our cross, following Jesus daily in death, pressing on in fearful, trembling obedience, and a challenge. It's a challenge to those who cry out, Lord, Lord, but do not do what God commands. We must pursue godliness if we expect to receive God's welcome. May we not presume on God's grace. New City, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises, promises that enable us to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by evil human desires. In view of all of this, Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith 
with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But... Those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their own sins, their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.